Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. My name is Mr. V. I'm Mr. Copeland. Today we're going to take a look at the Jefferson and Madison administrations all the way through the War of 1812. Here, Here we, we go. go. The law, the you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well trained. He will fight savagely. We'll fight our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We will accept nothing less than full victory. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. All right, so as we know, Jefferson is elected after the, um, in the year 1800. The reason why that's so important, we mentioned on the previous podcast about the bloodless revolution. The rest of the world notices when we peacefully transfer power from one political party to the other. So the Federalists are relinquishing power and transferring over to Jefferson and the uh, Democratic Republicans. And we're seeing um, the way in which a shift in those policies manifests itself in early stages of his presidency. He's elected largely because the country is tired of the Federalist Party's rule, and we still see that to this day. It's very difficult for a, um, the executive branch to be in one political party for more than eight years. Keep in mind, you know, you had the Alien and Sedition Acts, you also had the XYZ affair that really heavily stained not only the Adams administration, but the Federalist Party as well. Yeah, and, and one of the things is Jefferson was someone who did not believe that the executive should have too much power, and he took some steps and measures to make sure that that was um, maybe under control going forward to make it a little bit harder for him to get the job done, but he believed in it. He stuck to his principles for the most part, and that's one of the things that uh, he becomes a beloved image. Uh, uh, he becomes beloved because of this ideology and because of his um, being true to himself. So once Jefferson takes office, he's going to kind of like undo what he thought Adams and Washington were doing in their previous administrations, acting too much like royalty. They had too much power, as Mr. Copeland mentioned. So during his terms in office, he's going to limit the central government by a variety of ways, one in which he's going to try to pay off that federal debt that incurred throughout the first two administrations. The second, he's going to try to cut government spending, including cutting ties to the, uh, to the military budget, um, as well as other areas. And then eventually he's going to do away with the dreaded whiskey task, the tax that precipitated the revolution back in Washington's administration. Exactly. Now, one of the important Supreme Court cases, landmark cases that you're going to have to be focused on throughout the entire year, and one of the most important that really sets the precedent going forward for the Supreme Court is Marbury versus Madison, which establishes judicial review. The Supreme Court did not have the power to declare laws or actions by the government unconstitutional until Marbury versus Madison was decided. Correct. Keep in mind, before Adams left, his midnight judges were going to be quickly appointed. There was one said uh, document on his desk that was uh, authorizing Marbury to be the next one of the next federal judges. Of course, when uh, Jefferson took the ben uh, took the executive branch, um, he ordered James Madison 
not to process this written document authorizing Marbury. Of course, Marbury wanted the employment, so he sued Madison for failing to kind of go through the process of completely authorizing his employment. This Supreme, this case got up to the Supreme Court. Marbury made the claim to a Federalist judge, John Marshall, hey, listen, I deserve this employment. Madison, of course, defended saying it was over, it was never processed in time, it's too late, sorry. What is interesting about this case is that Marshall, a Federalist, actually decided in favor of Madison. Although he did not win this particular legal battle, the Federalists won the long-term war. And here's why. In this case, Marshall established the precedent known as judicial review. In other words, Marshall stated he could not overhear this case because the Judicial Act based on the argument of Marbury, was null and void to begin with. Yes. Once that happened, he created this this tradition that we still have today, where the Supreme Court now has the power to declare laws and actions unconstitutional. Never before this was stated in the Constitution, and this was met with a lot of fury, especially by the Democratic Republicans, but it's an interesting judo move that uh, John Marshall managed to do during this case. Yeah, and it's incredibly important because when you think about the system of checks and balances that we have, it was incomplete without this. Without judicial review, right. we would not have that triangle that both branches are to look after one another that they don't get too powerful. So this is incredibly important and the decision that uh, John Marshall makes really changes the course of history for the United States. We might have had issues with um, the executive accumulating too much power or Congress going out of control had it not been for that decision he made. So that brings us to the next important segment of Jefferson's administration. And that was actually a surprising decision to some right. that he made, which was to go forward with the Louisiana Purchase. All right. So it's known as the Land Act of 1800. It allowed U.S. citizens to expand to land outside to the Mississippian plants through federal loans. They basically are incentivizing settlement moving westward. All right. And one of the things that Jefferson does is send Monroe to go buy Louisiana City from the French. We want the Port of New Orleans. We want to be able to get out and use the Mississippi River to um, expedite trade. Okay, but Napoleon says you, if you want that, you have to take the whole thing. All right, so M Monroe consults with Jefferson and he hesitantly approves because here he is with his Democratic Republican principles of small, limited government, but yet he's going forward with a big federal decision. So the size of the United States doubles, but so does the national debt. All right, so one of the interesting things is he came in the office, as you mentioned, trying to reduce the debt. And now he would never have been supporting if this was Adams making this decision. But he looked at the um, vet cost-benefit analysis and realized this is something that's going to benefit us in the long run, even if it goes against my stated ideals. Well, also, in addition, you know that Jefferson is a strict interpreter of the Constitution. And nowhere in the Constitution gives the actual process or procedure uh, of a deal like this to mm -hmm. go through the, 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 the channels. In other words, this would be considered a treaty? Would this be considered a special deal between leaders? Um, Jefferson wanted initially to propose like some sort of amendment to kind of authorize this legally, um, but he didn't have time. Keep in mind, Napoleon was riddled with wars in Europe, and he actually wanted to sell this big chunk of land to get money to fight against the British. Mm -hmm. So who would have thought? Who would have known if uh, Jefferson took his time, being super legalistic? Uh, maybe Napoleon would have actually pulled the offer off the table. So this is an example where you know um, someone's principles and pragmatism are antithetical. They go against each other's odds. And most presidents that we will study are often have 
have to, to, to face this paradox in their own presidencies. Do they stick with their principles or do they go with more practical uh, routes um, that might anger some people? Yeah, and sometimes you're presented with options and none of them are good. You have to choose the one that is the next best option. Luckily, this was such a, an, a huge economic boon to the nation that very few people argued, even if it wasn't technically constitutional. Yeah, So, and one of the things that was needed immediately following was you got to find out what's in this territory. And that's where the Lewis and Clark expedition took place. So they set forth from, uh, I think it was St. Louis, that's why it's considered the gateway of the West, uh, to the West, excuse me. And it was about a two-year, four-month journey where they used Sacagawea as their American, Native American interpreter. And it really was the first look we had in, into this, the rest of what America was in the, the Great West. So they stretched all the way to the Pacific, all the way up the Missouri River, all the way out to um, the Pacific Ocean and Oregon. And it's, it's pretty baffling going out to uncharted territory like that with nothing other than a couple guides. So it's pretty impressive what they were able to accomplish. We will discuss more about westward expansion in other podcasts, but keep in mind without these two explorers and expeditioners, there wouldn't be such an easy or relatively easy roadmap for the rest of the pioneers. Um, we're going to switch gears now and move away some of his domestic policy agendas and focus more on Jefferson's foreign policy. And very quickly, during the beginning of his presidency, he starts to see rising internal international tensions. Keep in mind, most presidents since Washington want to maintain his farewell address policy of neutrality. Okay, not side with any country and also make sure that there's going to be this thing called free trade, that the ability that American merchants, merchant ships can trade freely. Now, the first conflict that Jefferson has to face are Barbary pirates. Barbary pirates are a group of a uh, group of pirates that are found off the coast of North Africa. They come from three kingdoms: Tripoli, Algeria, and Tunisia. Historically speaking, what these Barbary pirates would do, they would actually hijack these American merchant ships and then demand what we call tribute to the American government. George Washington and John Adams historically have always paid tribute. Why? Well, it's more economically feasible to pay them than risk draining the United States Treasury to go out into a fruitless war. Keep in mind, these Barbary pirates are scattered and they're not very centralized. It's not exactly like going to a war with the nation. So for the mo longest time... It just didn't Washington, seem like it was that difficult of an obstacle. Right, they would just pay them and get on with them. Yeah. Jefferson refuses to do that. And because of that, he's going to enter into this scale war called the Barbary Wars, in which he's going to actively pursue these pirates and to protect American free trade. Um, he's going to be kind of somewhat successful during these years, but it just goes to show you again, Jefferson, ever the person that wants to shrink the federal government, is again forced to actually give funds to the Navy to protect these American merchant ships. The second thing that, and more important thing mm -hmm. that kind of starts to hit uh, Jefferson during his foreign policy is, is the British uh, kind of muscling in during his term. Yeah, one of the things is that we're still a very young nation. Our military is not the strength that we now think of it as. So one of the things you have to think about is, as you mentioned, the American trade ships and the issues that they had across the Atlantic and all throughout trying to um, engage in trade and make as much money as possible, they're being destroyed and attacked by the French and the English. And one of the things that was causing the most difficulty was this term known as impressment where it technically was a legalized version of kidnapping for the British Empire, where they were imposed their will on our naval ships uh, and our trade ships, forcing people to serve in their military. Just 
snatching them up, taking them from one boat and bringing them to the other and carrying on with their day. So the English even went so far to destroy the USS Chesapeake where 21 sailors were, just, were killed. And the American public is furious. When they hear these headlines, they want war. They want someone that's going to stand up for us. But Jefferson thought otherwise. Jefferson realized getting into a conflict at this point would be way too much for us. We were not prepared for this type of conflict. All right, so Jefferson takes, a, uh, you know, he cools on that idea, lets the fury at home calm down. And what he does is he proposes to Congress an embargo. He says, let's hit them where it hurts them in their pocketbook. Let's go after them economically. And that's where the embargo is imposed. And that is an effort. It's a hostile action, but peaceful. We're no longer fighting, but we're aggressively going after their trade. So it's, it's a situation where he's trying to maintain the neutrality, maintain the situation where we don't want to get mixed up in the, the um, conflicts that you were mentioning between French and the British. But it ends up being a situation that he thought would work. It ends up hurting our economy uh, for the most part. Um, yeah, for them, yeah, it actually ends up hurting more American businessmen because it kind of implies the fact that our economy is strong enough to, with, to, to withstand or withhold any type of international trade. Yeah, and I, I left out the, the definition, basically. So an embargo is simply where we are no longer going to allow trade from the British or the French into our uh, country. So he's thinking this is going to hurt them economically and they'll come to the table with some type of compromise. But they have many more options to trade with, and those are our two main trade partners. So it ends up hurting the American business, businessmen and business, businesses in general much, much more than the French and the British. And therefore, that's why we're standing there. And the public kind of turns on Jefferson saying, you said this is going to be a better option for us. Look what you've done now. So in terms of evaluating Jefferson's presidency, I think it's fair to say that um, although Jefferson doubled the size of the nation with his miraculous uh, negotiation of the Louisiana Purchase, um, you can at the same time think it was more of a providential or fateful decision that was uh, secured by Rob Livingston and uh, James Monroe. It did double size the nation, which it grew the country, but also with the size of the nation and more Western territory will also increase what we will call sectionalism. Mm -hmm. So we can also give credit to Jefferson for doing that as well. At the same time, we can also give him credit for a kind of avoiding a war with Great Britain and trying alternative approaches to kind of punishing them with respect to impressment as well as providing uh, Native Americans with arms along the Ohio River uh, territory. Yeah, and um, the sectionalism you mentioned is critical because we saw from the very beginning the differences between the agricultural states in the South and the Northeastern merchant states. And the importance of economics, and every president is evaluated by the economics that take place during their administration's time and power. And here, even though Jefferson did a lot of good because the economy had a downturn towards the end of his eight years, he's viewed negatively by the American public in his time. And that's one of the important things that we realize there's only going to be one George Washington, and that here we are three presidents in, and we're not too satisfied with presidents two and three. Right. So he kind of leaves office, uh, regardless of how we're evaluating him, kind of like unpopular by 1808. And James Madison actually uh, succeeds him in the presidency. Now, James Madison was kind of a bit of his um, his 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 
I guess, what would you say, a student of him. Um, Even though he was the architect of the Constitution, Madison always looked up to Jefferson. He was a little bit younger than him. So it kind of made it a very easy transition, especially for Jefferson, to give it away to one of his very close confidants and political allies. Madison won the election of 1808 easily despite this anger of the Embargo Act of 1807. However, he's going to enter the office in the midst of an internal international crisis. As we mentioned before, tensions between the U.S. and Britain are rising. They're not uh, dissipating at all. And Madison is going to have to decide whether or not to lead the United States into its first full-scale war since the Revolution. Yeah, and so the term impressment comes up again, and it continues to be an issue. There are war hawks in Congress, which is basically politicians that are eager to take the country to war because they feel like that would be uh, an an important and the right thing to do. Uh, And they tend to be intensely nationalistic in this time. There's this sense of pride about what it means to be American, and we want to take our country to war against Britain because we can seize Canada. Canada is still a territory or a colony of the British Empire. We have to remember that. So the two men that led this charge, known as war hawks, because of the frustration with impressment, were Henry Clay, the uh, Democratic Republican from Kentucky, and John C. Calhoun from South Carolina, also the Republican as well as continued frustrations that we were having with the Native Americans that were being kind of uh, instigated by the British by them providing them with weapons to kind of uh, pester the Americans on the frontier. Remember, this has been happening since Washington's administration. So the the nation as a whole has been very, very much upset about the policies of trying to avoid war, and it's going to reach a fever pitch by 1812. This kind of brings us uh, reluctantly to the War of 1812. So Madison has this cons- uh, this idea to play Britain and France against one another. And he's hoping that you know he can get some type of negotiation that we won't have to go to war. But France ends up breaking first, and America ends up focusing their hostility towards the British. Britain agrees to stop seizing ships, but it's too late. There's already conflict. The war hawks in Congress succeed in declaring war, and the nation's divided. Sectionalism, as well as politics, play into this. So the frustration is here. We only have 16 ships in the Navy. Weak military and our finances are in shambles with the debt from the Louisiana Purchase. So the other problem that played into this was the National Bank is not renewed in 1809. So here we are, a country that needs to go to war. The sectionalism plays a major role here. Northern merchant cities, the banks, they don't want to pay for a war that they're not going to get paid back for. The country that loses very rarely is going to be able to pay their banks back the loans. So the money center of the Northeast refused to loan any money to support the war because they didn't believe in it. And that played a major role in our difficulties fighting against the British. So the war kind of rages on. Military battles will ensue all over the East Coast as well as in Canada and the South. British troops will even go as far as burning the White House and destroy most of Washington, D.C. There's a famous story of uh, James Madison's wife, Dolly Madison, heroically staying behind as everyone's evacuating the city uh, to save a portrait of George Washington. But uh, eventually, Americans will slowly rebound to win some major battles. And that's what really is an abrupt end to this unusual war. The War of 1812 ends where basically peace is called by both sides. Andrew Jackson emerges as a national hero for his role in the Battle of New Orleans, and it is the Treaty of Ghent that is signed that ends the war. The frustrating thing is it really brings about no significant changes whatsoever. But one of the important elements is what happens immediately following the war, and that is the Hartford Convention. 
the Hartford Convention is basically a meeting that was held by Federalists in Connecticut during the War of 1812. And at this meeting, keep in mind it was not all Federalists, a small minority of Federalists, denounced Jefferson's radical states' rights ideas, and they proposed amendments to strengthen New England states and weaken the South. They wanted to repeal the Three-Fifths Compromise and even go as far as proposing some sort of peace treaty separate from the rest of the country. And one of the things that's interesting is you have to think about optics and the way politics plays out in the public sphere. The press is reporting on the fact that we just won a war. We fought off the British. We, we settled them with peace, but a lot of people were worried that we would be conquered again and become a colony. Right? We'd only been in existence for about 20 years. So the nationalistic pride following the War of 1812 that we were able to defend ourselves and that our national identity was secure is simultaneously published with the news from this Hartford Convention where the Federalists talk about the need for these changes, they talk about their proposals, and they seem out of touch and they're viewed as unpatriotic by much of the country. This permanently damages the Federalist Party and they seem to never recover. So the overall effects of the war is largely psychological. You have the war will leave America with a positive, not only world image, but an image of themselves. And we're beginning to see America shed away from its British skin, so to speak, and evolve into something new and different. There's also going to be, like Mr. Copeland said, a strong feeling of nationalism throughout the nation, which will serve as a cohesive to the nation. And lastly, the thing we want to leave you with is now we're going to see in the next few years in our country the first time where we have one-party rule. The Federalist Party is damaged. Their reputation is so much, um, takes such a hit that basically they lose control of Congress and quickly they dissipate from the face of American politics. So that leads us into what we call the era of good feelings, and that's where we'll pick it up next time. For Mr. V, I'm Mr. Copeland. We'll see you soon. Take care.